clean line design that sets it apart from the lookalike. Business is built on data, facts, and figures. It's also made up of some of the most fascinating stories the world has known. What makes business tick? What are the stories we can find in their failures and victories? Get ready to find out what some of today's leaders were thinking right now on Business Disrupted. Here is your host, Ted Gavin. Welcome to Business Disrupted, and I am happy to be back from break. Adoption is, according to a May 2021 study by Ibis World, a $19.1 billion industry in the United States. Adoption brings love and hope to families. It provides options where only bad incomes, uh, excuse me, bad outcomes might otherwise exist. And it provides better outcomes for children. Adoption is a table built on three legs, birth parents, adoptive parents, and adoptees. But those legs aren't the same. They don't bear equal weight in the process, and they don't have equal power or representation in the adoption process. Adoption is used as a pawn in the culture wars, as a cudgel in legislative efforts to limit women's bodily autonomy, and isn't an easy or inexpensive process. Yet as an industry, adoption is growing. Adoption and children's services as an industry has grown 3.7% in 2021, after posting only a 1.7% growth rate from 2016 through 2020. To help us make sense of all of this, we're joined by Molly Ramp Thomas, founder of Choice Network Adoptions, a nationwide adoption agency that matches birth parents with families looking to adopt. Molly, welcome to the show. Hi, Ted. Thank you so much. What an intro that was. <laughs> well, let's let's uh, let's see what what interesting things we can find. How did you come to start an adoption agency? Well, so I um, started Choice Network, which is my um, adoption agency 10 years ago. Um, at that time, I was, I was actually running um, homeless shelters for the YWCA here locally in Columbus, Ohio. And um, during that time, our number one family was a single mom. Um, 50% of the time, um, our uh, the people who entered our shelter were pregnant. So we were just um, seeing every time they would have a new pregnancy, they would re-enter shelter. I started to be the go-to for women to come to with their unplanned pregnancy. I was connecting them to women's clinics, talking with them about their options, and started to realize that women really didn't believe that adoption was an option for them. So I presented an idea to a local abortion clinic to offer adoption on site um, at uh, inside their clinic doors. The idea came because, um, you know, as I was researching options for women, I was seeing that um, abortion was a really pro-choice issue or adoption was a really pro-life issue. And I wondered if there was a place that we could have a common ground. Um, and um, so that's what kind of really built Choice Network. I walked into an, the abortion clinic. I said, I have this idea. The owner was like, let's do it. I love it. Um, at that time, I had barely Googled adoption, but I just knew that it was something that I was called to do. Um, a couple weeks after meeting with them, they called and let me know that they had a woman for me to talk to. Um, so again, I was running a homeless shelter. I had just started learning about adoption. So, uh, but I felt like I had to take the call. So I went and talked with the woman. Um, she uh, was 24 weeks pregnant at the time. Um, I believe 24, I forget Ohio, their laws have changed so much, but she was, she was a week from being able to um, have an abortion. Um, so when I went and talked with her, she said, um, 
you know, I haven't told them that I'm HIV positive. I cannot move forward with my um, adoption. I can't do adoption. I can't parent. I, I have to choose abortion. So I called another clinic in, in um, Cleveland, Ohio, and they agreed to, to take her. So they were going to do her abortion with her at no cost. During that time, um, I helped her to get transportation to the clinic. I talked with her on her way. Um, I talked with her before she entered the clinic doors. About an hour later, she called me and she said, I'm too far along. Um, Columbus had measured her wrong um, and she was too far along for an abortion. She cried really hard and said, my daughter's going to end up in the foster care system. She found out she was having a baby girl and out of nowhere, I said, what if I adopt her? So um, she came home and that um, woman ended up being the birth mother of my daughter. Um, and I, I didn't really realize that I needed my own adoption story and able to do this work because it was really in um, falling in love with her and getting to be a part of her plan that I really um, realized that I wanted, if I was going to do this, I was going to do it all different. Um, and that started with um, promising clinics that I was working with that I was going to all offer all options to pregnant people first, that I really truly believe that pregnant people cannot make good adoption, safe and ethical adoption plans without having access to all of their options first. And so I, um, you know, started there. Uh, and then, you know, when you have that experience where a woman hands you their baby, all of a sudden you're like, everything in the world has to change this. You know, I can't imagine having someone on the other end that wasn't there in order to honor her. So I just, I decided to start this agency to try to wreck the adoption world, do it all different and do it in community with the pro-choice um, community. This is, this is fascinating. So you, your first adoption was you adopting from a birth parent that you were originally going to try and source an adoption for, except she was going to pursue another remedy. And, and that, that was that, as it turned out, not available to her. And, and I, I suppose it's safe to say that no list of questions survives the answer to the first question, but my, my list of questions has now just gone completely out of order because I'm going to skip to, 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 to some of the, one of the ending points, because you just mentioned that one of the services that your, your agency offers to, to birth mothers is a complete range of options. You're when, when they come to you saying, I need options, you're not just saying, well, you know, adoption, but you're also counseling them on the availability of abortion and and what other other whatever other options they might have. That is not something one would expect an adoption agency to do. Why do you do this? Yeah, I you know we serve about 250 pregnant people a year, and we only do 15 to 20 adoptions a year. So our biggest work is all options work. Um, and I would say about 50% of the women who come to us, we're, we're referring right back to the clinic, but we're referring them back with more education, more love, more peace. Um, so we really, you know, again, our, we truly believe what, what we know for sure is that the way that adoption has been done in this world has harmed women, families, kids, communities. And so we wanted to do everything all different. And there are 3,000 public and private adoption agencies in the nation. We're one of only six that are recognized by the pro-choice movement. And so we just knew that whatever they were doing, we were going to do different because there's just, you know, there's no research on how to do this well because really no one is doing it well. So, um, so yeah, I just, um, I believed that that was part of, that had to be the first step. 
um, because a woman shouldn't have to be forced into an adoption plan because she doesn't have, you know, the funding for abortion or because she doesn't have childcare for her kids or because she entered a pregnancy decision center rather than abortion clinic, you know, that is not a reason why a woman should be forced into an adoption plan. Um, and and in a pregnancy decision center or a pregnancy or a crisis pregnancy center is just for the for the listeners who don't know it is something that looks like an abortion clinic or an abortion provider and acts outwardly as an abortion provider and then when you get there they use any number of techniques to steer you to any option other than abortion correct they mask themselves as being pro choice um in the end really all they care about is that the woman carries to term we don't see a whole lot, you know, actually, um, here's a stat that I think you'll love, Ted, before the passage of Roe versus Wade, 80% of women were forced into adoption plans. After the passage of Roe v. Wade, only 1% of women have chosen adoption. So it's interesting, it's not like our adoption numbers are high, or they've ever changed, they're really a low amount of women who are choosing adoption. Um, but abortion rights actually unintentionally gave women choosing adoption rights, because suddenly, there were less babies available for adoption. So women started saying, I want to choose the family. I want to stay in touch with them. I want my expenses paid. I want attorney involved. You know, they got to begin calling the shots. Um, and so, so yeah, when they walk into pregnancy decision centers, maybe they'll be offered a couple families who've reached out to them. Um, but, um, you know, for us, when they come to us, their first start, we first start with all options. Um, and then for the very small percentage of them, we help to create adoption plans that center them. And that's a really big piece of it too, because, you know, adoption is normally built to center adoptive families because they are the person paying you to run, you know, they're, they are, they pay my budget. So they're, they are the ones paying the adoption industry. So um, usually, um, usually adoption agencies are centering adoptive parents and then adoptees and birth mothers last. And we flip that on its head where we believe that if a woman isn't centered in the plan, then the adoption plan um, cannot be good. Before we dive into that a little bit, uh, let's lay some foundation. There, there are different types of adoption. Uh, there's open adoption, there's semi-open adoption, there's closed adoption. Talk about the differences and, and in particular, um, why you choose to emphasize on open adoption? Mm -hmm. Well, closed adoption is really not even in existence anymore. Um, I think that the stat is 85% of women want open adoptions. But what I think the real experience is, is that all women want open adoptions. So um, closed adoption is where you have no access um, to the family in the past. It used to even mean you wouldn't know if you had a boy or a girl. You know, the, the baby came, a blanket was put over its head and was wheeled away. Then they began again after the passage of Roe v. Wade, women got, got to start to see their babies, make decisions for them. Um, and so then there started to be this thing where it was like, we don't really want open adoptions, but we'll do mediated open adoptions with the adoption agency sort of mediating the relationship. But at Choice Network, we do only open adoptions. We don't believe that we should stand in the center of the adoptive family and the birth mother, um, that it's up to them to build that relationship. So we sort of stand behind them, supporting them in the relationship to us completely open adoptions are really the only way uh, because in that you're still keeping the ties to the family. Um, you're still um, keeping that connection to, um, especially in transracial adoptions, you're keeping the connection to their culture, to their community. Um, 
but yeah, so we believe it's the only way it looks different for some people it can just be like a texting relationship for some people. It's um, they, they share a Facebook account for some it's visits um, with our, my daughter's um, birth mother. Um, we do visits all of the time. I, we see her regularly. And in the relationship between the, the agency, the birth mother, the adoptive parents and the adoptee, who has the power to decide which form of adoption occurs between obviously open and semi-open? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, what we want to believe to be true is that the birth mother has, um, she gets to decide. There is such things as um, um, legally binding openness contracts. Some states have those, some states do not. Most states do not. Um, in the um, legally binding openness contracts, that's really when the mother can have a say um, um, and it can be legally binding. But otherwise, the, um, the hope is that the birth mother chooses an agency that supports her, a family is trained and understands adoption really well, and that her wishes are what are granted. Um, but the reality is once she signs the permanent surrender or signs legal rights, it's the family who gets to make the decisions. And that's why we just have to have this constant education to them on how important it is to have a good, strong relationship. One of our listeners uh, um, made a comment on, on our Facebook live feed that, that the, the, only, the only rights belong to the birth mother and that the adoptive parents really, their, their job is to simply write checks up until everything is, is fully baked, not to make a bad pun, but until the adoption has happened and is irrevocable the the adoptive parents only rights are to write checks and that seems pretty extreme but is is that the case i mean they are making a point that the birth mother sort of calls the shots until signing happens and after that the family be, can begin to call the shots you know so i mean technically i guess yes that would be true but um you know in our the philosophy that we carry is that we start that where she is centered and that continues on no matter what. But I would say, yes, in the adoption industry, the woman has um, the say so. And I mean, write checks is, I mean, to, to, to insinuate ever that a woman is making money on an adoption plan would be absolutely ridiculous, but um, you know, and maybe they mean the adoption agency, but um, really in our in our, the way that we do our work and the way the best agencies do their work is the family's job is actually technically to build a relationship with the birth mother um, until the baby is born and then continue that relationship after. You talked about your agency and other agencies. How, how, does, how does a person, be it a, a birth mother or a, a prospective adoptive parent, how do they know the, the signs of a good, reputable adoption agency? Yeah, we always tell, you know, women and families that to us, um, making sure that the agency is pro-choice, making sure that we're, they're centering the pregnant person and making sure that they welcome all families. So for example, my agency says we welcome all women, all children, all families and all choices. And so it's really that, you know, you want to see them, we say, you know, screaming from the mountaintops that they're inclusive of everyone. Um, and unfortunately, you know, um, again, because adoption is such a big business, the best agencies can't market the way the big Christian agencies can market. So 
women aren't going to really find us online. They find us through community that they have built. Um, but that's where that trust can begin right away. Sometimes I feel like we get to have really beautiful relationships with the pregnant people who come to us because they come to us through this beautiful system in a, in a, in a beautiful community that sends them our way and says you can trust them to, to help. So, so drilling down on that, how do birth parents find you or how do you find birth parents? So I'm connected um, nationally to um, independent abortion providers and in a couple states to Planned Parenthood, specifically Florida and Ohio. Um, so, um, so yeah, we uh, connect with clinics and they refer us directly. They refer directly to us. So for, for those not, uh, not living the reproductive rights issues on a daily basis, one of the things that has come about as laws have evolved in, in different places is that when a woman goes to a provider seeking information about an abortion, there is a conversation mm -hmm. and, and that conversation will include a discussion of options. Those options include adoption. And ideally you or somebody like you or your agency is on a list of providers that that patient can walk out with that day and consider. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, um, there's, again, there's six of us. And I would say that the, the um, pro-choice community pretty regularly uses us. But, you know, even in states that we don't have a strong presence, they, um, abortion clinics, what I have seen, have relationships with adoption agencies or attorneys. So, you know, they take the time to build those relationships. Um, because what I know is that good people work inside abortion clinics and what they care about is the woman who's coming to them. So they do the work that they need to do. And I think that we just help to make it easier for them. We're talking about adoption with Molly Ram Thomas. If you have questions, tweet them to us at BIZ Disrupted or email them to comments at disrupted.business. How do birth parents find you? Excuse me. How do adopt a prospective adoptive parents find you? Yeah. So I, um, you know, when I built Choice Network, we became really quickly one of the leaders um, in pro-choice adoption. But we also um, really became a place that the LGBTQ community could turn to us. And so um, I would say most of my families come from the human rights campaign. They have a seal of adoption approval for agencies. So um, families find me there. I also do a ton of work with Gays with Kids, which is this awesome um, online community um, that sends a lot of families my way. Actually, right now, Ted, we're not even accepting families because we have such a long wait list. In the end, I think our work is bigger in trying to make policy change and do adoption different. You know, we're doing just such a small percentage of adoptions that we can't have a ton of waiting families that come to us. So on average, I only have around 25 waiting families at a time. And that's about feels right to me. The big adoption agencies, you know, the ones who give this um, work the bad name will have way more than that with no care in the world about whether or not they place them. But, you know, families who are looking to our people who are looking to build their family are a vulnerable population. Um, so they uh, families will pay anything to have their dream um, met. Um, and so, so we are doing some work. We're calling it our very godmother project because we can't take all these families. We're um, partnering with some organizations to make sure that families are connected to the right people. What's the ratio of people wanting to adopt versus children available for adoption? 
36 waiting couples to every, every one baby available for adoption. And is that, is, is that you or is that nationwide? Nationwide. Really? Yes. 36. Now, Ted, there are 500,000 kids in the foster care system, 100,000 of them legally available for adoption today. Um, so we're talking about infants. The 36 to one is literally 36 waiting couples to every one baby available for adoption. Right. But nationwide, we have 100,000 orphans needing homes. And, and, and why do agent, agencies rarely interact with the public adoption system? You know, the public adoption um, system is a beast in itself. I mean, they, um, they, um, they were built by white people, you know, to try to fix the problem of people of, you know, communities uh, in, of poor communities that the, the way they do their work does not work. Um, what they're doing is really, um, taking children from their homes, making it really hard for moms to get their kids back. I think they're trying to change that. We're seeing a lot of kinship placements happening where, um, where um, they're trying to keep families together, but it's just, it's truly hard for women when they lose their kids in the system to get them back. We're trying to change that. I think good adoption agencies are trying to do that work. Actually, the pro-choice community is doing that work, saying that women deserve to parent their children in um, safe communities. Um, what we know is that women need resources and they need um, community. Um, you and I, Ted, were talking, I asked you because you said you wanted to talk about um, tax law. And I was like, what is that about? And you said an <laughs> article that I had wrote. And, you know, it is so true. Like, I believe if we were to redo the foster care system, first of all, I want to turn to people of color on how to do that. Um, you know, definitely, I would not be the expert in that. But what we have heard from the women that we work with is what they want, what they need are resources and community, but then we give those resources instead to other people, you know, um, women need money, <laughs> they need support. Um, and I think that if we were able to support them and give them community, we'd have way less kids in the foster care system. So I don't think even, I don't know if the answer is that adoption agencies need to partner more. I almost worry that that would make kids more vulnerable. I think that, just like we have to offer all options to pregnant women, we should offer all options to families too. I also think that families can't make safe and safe and ethical adoption plans if they don't know all of their options to building family as well, including their um, option to choose foster care. We talked earlier about um, the characteristics of a good adoption agency. What are the characteristics or the warning signs that an agency is not a good one? I think if they have tons of waiting families, I would definitely not want someone I love to turn to them. Um, I think that if they are shaming women in any way, I would not turn to them. Um, I mean, I think if they aren't serving, if they're not inclusive, they're not serving all families. I don't, you know, women today are, they are wanting non-traditional families. They are wanting um, families that they know are going to include them. So why would they choose an agency that isn't inclusive of all? Um, so, yeah, I think those are the biggest things. There, there is a term uh, that is pejoratively applied to adoption agencies, some adoption agencies, not all. Um, they're, they're referred to as baby sellers. 
how does that come about? What are the characteristics? What are, what are we talking about when, when that term is used? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that we've talked about it a lot already, just about that 36 waiting couples to every one baby available for adoption. You can see where coercion and pressure comes in for women. Um, you know, also 3,000 public and private agencies and pregnancy decision centers. I mean, all of those things are what um, help to um, pressure women. Um, and it is, you know, for agencies that are accepting limitless families there, you know, I talked to my, to my team about we could market, but we, you know, I, I think that the reason why they have these huge budgets many times is because they've accepted all of these families. So they have this additional revenue. So it's just this, this horrible cycle um, of, um, of having way too many families and not enough women right. um, and where we really need to, like I said, be talking to families about other way to build the other ways to build their families about making sure that families are educated on what adoption really looks like for many families. Surrogacy is a better option for them um, rather than adoption. Cause adoption truly is about loving a woman. It's about community. It's about openness. Um, and that's not going to be right for everyone. It's interesting because the popular, I guess, conception, well, all right, that's going to be a problematic word. The popular concept of abortion, excuse me, adoption is that, you know, you, you reach an agreement with somebody and then poof, you have a child and that's it. There's, there's no talk in popular culture about how you're really creating a relationship with the birth mother that's going to endure mostly for the benefit of the child. Um, whether or not the adoptive parents want it or think it's important, it's important for the mother and it's important for the child and it's going to be a thing if the agency is set up to to structure the relationship in that way that doesn't get talked about a lot. Why is that? It's because adoption were, was built um, as a business, I think. You know, it was built um, as an easy fix Um it was built to be like one and done, you know, actually we were, um, Hannah Matthews was who I was hoping was going to be able to be on your podcast to talk because it was her words that I shared that made you reach out. And, um, you know, she even talks about how it's this business and we use these really, you know, simple terms to try to make something so complicated seem so easy. Um, so yeah, I think, um, it was just never built to center women. It was built right. to bring in money. It was built to solve the problem of white middle income two parent mom and dad, um, childless couples needing kids. Um, it wasn't built to make community stronger. It wasn't built to love pregnant people. It wasn't built to make sure kids are safe. Well, and it was and it was built at a time when the stigma associated with bearing a child out of, out of marriage or, or, or under circumstances that were not yeah, typical of the nuclear family were, were designed to be shameful. So, you know, the mother wanted to run away from it and the parents didn't want anything to do with the mother. Is that, is that right? Well, and the mother had no options, you know, cause abortion wasn't legal at the time um, right. when adoption was created. Okay. 
We're talking with Molly Ram Thomas, expert on adoption, about the business of bringing adoptive parents together with birth parents and adoptees. If you have questions, tweet them to us at bizdisrupted or email them to comments at disrupted.business. We're going to take a short break for some messages from our sponsors. Stick around and we'll be right back. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Gavin Solmanese is the experienced leader for complex financial matters, restructuring, and litigation consulting. Whatever your situation, we have the ability and know-how to restore troubled companies to profitability and growth. We've successfully completed financial advisory engagements for hundreds of companies that have gone on to renewed health and success. No matter the size or complexity of the case, our clients always work directly with senior professionals and receive exceptional work product. We know that asking the right questions is always the first step in defining the true problem. Generating alternative solutions and finding a clear path forward is what we do. To us, it's all about results. What you do next is what counts. When there are tough decisions and hard choices to make, you need smart, strategic people beside you. Choose the team who never stops working until your problem, dispute, or financial crisis is resolved. Visit Gavin Solmanese at GavinSolmanese.com or call us at 302-655-8997. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. America is heading over a fiscal cliff. Home prices are still receding and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. You are listening to Business Disrupted. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to contact at disrupted.business. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. If you have questions, tweet them to us at bizdisrupted or email them to comments at disrupted.business. We're talking about the business of adoption with Molly Ramp Thomas, founder of Choice Network Adoptions. Molly, how much does it cost to adopt a child through an agency? How much are the adoptive parents going to going to be investing in this process? Um, the national average for an infant adoption domestically is $42,000. And what's baked into those costs? Where does that money go? So there's agency fees, there's attorney fees, there's medical fees for the birth mother, there are um, uh, living expenses for birth mother too. Usually that's what makes up their fees. Also advertising is something that is allowed in almost all states now. So that's another thing that families um, can include costs on. 
And is that advertising just for the agency to advertise if you're if you're pregnant and looking for choices, come to us? Or is it we have this couple and here are their glossy headshots and they do these things and they would like a child? Families can actually create websites um, and they can use like a, a team to help to market them. There's also agencies that do it. Um, but yeah, it's their way to try to have birth mothers find them directly online rather than through an agency. It, it, how how successful is that? I'm somewhat horrified at the prospect of, you know, a New York Times engagement section style layout uh, for for people looking for a child. Um, I don't know, success rate. I, I mean, again, there's just such a small percentage of people who are actually adopting. When 1% of women are choosing it, the numbers are so small. So I, I think a lot of families do do it. I, I think though, probably the vast majority believe that connecting to an agency is the best way um, to have a safe match. Hmm. There's uh, opportunity in advertising online, for example, there's opportunity for um, a lot of like scamming to happen from people who are not birth mothers. Right. And, and, and how do those examples, the scams, how, how do they present themselves? How do, how do we find them? Um, families find, usually big red flags are women, you know, people asking for money. Um, right. it, when pregnant people come to us, about, only about 20%, um, after they've made, you know, how, they've connected with a family and made an adoption plan, only about 20% have a change of heart. Um, which we believe change of hearts are a good and common thing. Um, nationally, about 50% do, but none of those numbers should be a part of those who are just literally out there scamming anyone they can for money. Right. And and, and of those 20% that have a change of heart and decide not to continue with the adoption process, that that has to be incredibly disappointing for the adoptive parents. What 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 counseling, what do you do to counsel them? Yeah. Well, my team is made up of a team of social workers. So we do do counseling with our families, but I think really, it's really just training that and that if it isn't right for her, it isn't right for you. So even though it is heartbreaking, you want that to happen now rather than six years from now. So we want a woman who is confident and at peace with her decision. Otherwise it's not a good plan. So though it's heartbreaking, it's the right thing to do. Um, So we tell families, you know, you don't want, you know, uh, a child, a, a child to ask you at age eight, you mean my mother wanted me and she just didn't have housing. And that's why she had to place me. It's like, no, let's get her housing. And if, you know, that's, if adoption's still right, then that's the path that will go. But you want to be able to fully be able to answer your child's question in a place where you're like, we chose an agency that made sure all options were available to her. We chose an agency that made sure that she was centered in the plan. Um, We chose an agency that did everything in their power to make sure she had peace. Um, And sometimes, you know, women go through the stages of grief, just like families do, you know, we'll have families come to us who have struggled with um, having children of their own and they're in the stages of grief and we didn't quite realize it. They're masking themselves as not being, and it can happen with women too. So it just means we get to do a little extra work on the back end. Um, But we, you know, grief happens when unplanned pregnancy happens, no matter what your choice is Um, and grief happens in in infertility as well. And so it's just a part of our work really. You mentioned earlier, Hannah Jackson Matthews and something that, that she had communicated and that you later communicated via social media, which is what I saw that made me think that this was a discussion worth having. 
And like so many things involving um, cultural issues, involving socioeconomic issues, um, it is framed as as a false equivalence. And and the the issue is that the the notion of adoption being an equilateral triangle, or as I characterized it earlier, a a table with three legs, implies erroneously that adoptive parents, birth parents, and adoptees are equally involved in and impacted by adoption. Now, you know, an adoptee is certainly involved in an adoption, but they are very much a passive party. Mm-hmm. Um, there are not a lot of adoptees who have a say in the adoption process when they are not yet born, and and so it becomes a a a, in a conversation and later a contractual relationship between um, a, a birth parent and an, an adoptive parents. Mm-hmm. Where where is the where is the weakness in this in this story? Where are the problems in just saying, well, it's between the two of them and they have equal power and the agency has it taken care of, go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that um, the only way that we can protect adoptees is by honoring them. And we honor them by giving them access to everything that is theirs. So that can include like their medical history, the reason their mom chose adoption, um, just you know, everything that got them, their, their whole beginning of their story, just like we deserve it um, as children born biologically to our parents, they deserve access to all of the answers. Um, so we honor them and we honor their future by honoring her. To, to us, what we know for sure is closed adoption did not work. Um, actually, uh, there was a stat once that in residential treatment centers, 80% of kids in the centers were adopted children. And so what we know is that closed adoption harms women, families, um, children and communities. So what we want to do is just do it all different. Mm -hmm. And the way, the only way we can really do that is by honoring her and then giving them access to her when they begin asking about it, you know, like adoptive parents need to heal their past trauma and heal, you know, their loss, their infertility loss, heal whatever path got them to choose adoption so that they can come whole and ready um, to welcome all members of the triad. Because really in the end, they, you know, when we were talking about before, really in the end, the families have the power and control because they have the money and they have the resources. But what we really want is to try to do everything we can to even that playing field. And the best way to do it is to just honor her and center her in every way that we can. And you, you mentioned healing a lot and, and coming, coming past the trauma of, of, of being a birth parent that, that gives up a child for adoption. It's, it's an inherently unnatural thing, but it is necessary and there are cases where it is the best possible option for everybody involved. But you mentioned healing. Does the agency assist the birth mother with that process? Or do, do you, is that beyond the bounds of what an agency can do? Yeah, I would say the best agencies do that. Our oldest choice network kid is 10 and we still have connection to their birth mother. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's healing for them sometimes. So just like, you know, there's a myth that when women choose abortion, they um, are hurt, you know, they have PTSD and they're, you know, they, they're, 
they grieve that loss forever. It's the same with adoption. I mean, you and with choosing to parent, no matter what, if you're experiencing an unplanned pregnancy, you have to walk through the stages of grief. Um, and uh, so we just walk through them really, no matter what their option is. So women who have chosen abortion have come to us and we're able to walk through those so same stages as women who've chosen adoption and women who've chosen to parent their kids. Um, and so what our goal is for it to be a small step in their big life. And we do that by just having resources available to them, community available to them, honestly, connection to their child available to them. That's what brings the most healing. With the, the specialization that Choice Network has, um, pro-choice, close relationships with abortion providers, independent abortion providers largely, and also uh, a close connection to to the LGBTQ community, it, you you seem to be kind of treading water in the culture wars, and 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 that puts you kind of smack in the middle of a lot of different legislative issues and a lot of different um, fights, frankly, over over individual liberties and and over legislative attempts to narrow those. What talk about the complexities inherent in LGBTQ adoptions? What what are the what are the big hurdles? Well, you know, um, only one in four adoption agencies nationwide will serve LGBTQ couples, but there's a recent stat that um, seven um, LGBTQ families will adopt at seven times the rate faster than um, heterosexual couples. So, you know, there's they they first of all fear choosing an agency that isn't going to be inclusive of them or that's going to harm them in some way. So finding a safe and inclusive agency is one. And then there are still legal battles. I mean, we have um, a lesbian couple who's matched with a woman in Mississippi and um, their laws there do not recognize, um, well, certain courts um, dependent on where the birth mother will deliver. Um, we have to get creative with the legal team to make sure that both, um, both uh, partners are able to adopt, um, that they wouldn't kick it out of the, um, out of their courthouse. So we have to just make sure that we have legal teams that are inclusive, that also support all options, that support all families. So do we, we do a ton of work with that. Um, but yeah, I think it's laws. I think it's agencies. I think it was a system again, not built to serve them and it still does not serve them well. A system what, and laws. What are the, what are the remedies in a case like that where, you know, somewhere that has on a county by county basis, different laws that, that will treat both a mother's ability to, to give up a child for adoption and, and adoptive parents ability to adopt differently. Do you, and what are the options available? Do you do you have the, the mother go to another state and give birth there? You can get creative. There's also choice of law. So you may then use, you know, if, if the um, couples from Florida, maybe use, use uh, Florida court for them to finalize. So there's just, you know, honestly, each case in each state is so different. And then each county is different. In Ohio, we have a couple counties that are just horrible to have to finalize in for all families. Um, so we just get creative with teams of attorneys um, and find ways to make it happen. But that's also why it's so important that families have agencies that support them and that they choose attorneys that support them as well. You know, even more the important. Yeah. 
I mean, it occurs to me if LGBTQ families are adopting at a higher rate or would adopt at a higher rate if, they, if there were children for them to adopt and, and the legal framework allowed them to, and agencies are charging fees to, to allow themselves to exist while they do this work, there, there seems to be a natural business case to cater to focus on LGBTQ families because a there once, once you're established with them, there there's more of them in a greater concentration in the population and you can probably tailor your services in a premium. So if somebody was looking at that issue from a purely economic standpoint, it, there, there would, you know, there would be this, this compulsion toward marketing and, and, and solely to that audience because they're going to be more dedicated to the process. There are more of them as a percentage and they're going to spend more money, but that's not what happens. And, and, and that's where we get in this overlay of something other than being an adoption agency, which is call it morality police, call it cultural issues, call it what you will, but there's, there's something other than business at play there. And Ted, it's also one of my biggest worries, to be honest, you know, one of the largest adoption agencies, um, nationwide, um, just opened their doors to LGBTQ families. That was because they were part of a lawsuit where um, they partnered directly with the county and they were not allowing all families. So they were not um, serving LGBTQ families. Mm-hmm. So they got sued. So they were forced to open up to, to, um, to all families. So um, what scares me is I actually talked with this agency at one point just to be like, you know, is there a way that we could find common ground? But the place that we were stuck is that they refuse to serve LGBTQ families. They now have opened their doors just recently to LGBTQ families. You know, my worry is that they are going to see that there is a huge market out there that they will, they have resources, they have community to back them up. Um, and they are going to prey on these families. It is, a, it is also why I'm starting my Fairy Godmother Project, because I do not want that to happen to families, not the good ones, you know, not the ones who are here for the right reasons. Right. That pisses me off. <laughs> so nope. I'm going to do what I can. And it's, it's really also working with HRC. It's working with, it, it's the same thing. You know, HRC has a list of approved agencies that um, LGBTQ couples can go to. And we're really asking them, like, can you do this for surrogacy as well? Can we do it for foster care as well? Because we need to protect LGBTQ families. You mentioned your fairy godmother project. Um, what, what is, what is your fairy godmother project? It, right. It's our, um, I talked about it a little before, at least I thought I did, but it's just our, our way to try to help LGBTQ families build their family. Um, so it's again, that idea that just like women need all options to, um, how, um, um, all options for their unplanned pregnancy families need all options um, for uh, how to build family. And so we're partnering with surrogacy agencies. We're um, making sure all families know about foster care as an option. I mean, I think there's a lot of beautiful things we can do with the LGBTQ community in regards to helping women parent their children, because what, what women need are community and resources and what LGBTQ people are good at is community and resources. <laughs> so, you know, just, um, we're just trying to take what the pro-life Christian community has done and just try to do it better and try to, to include everyone um, and, and have it all look different. You, you mentioned the, the pro-life com- community, um, which placed another way is the anti-choice community. Choice is 
at the heart of your 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 agency it's 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 its name your um your relationships with with abortion providers is is an issue relating to the patient's choice that is that makes you a little unusual in in the scope of adoption agencies how how did it evolve, beyond what you've talked about where do you think we can go with this particularly as the abortion landscape is is poised to change so dramatically over probably the next 24 months right i mean i think we need to keep fighting for women's rights um that can never stop adoption isn't the answer for those women because if it was they would be choosing it um and Part of that also is um, making our community stronger, you know, uh, fighting for, you know, our prison systems, our, <laughs> at the, the rate that um, people of color are being arrested, you know, all of the things that need to be, all systems that need to be um, transformed. I mean, it, it's, I think that it's just, it's taking everything and doing it all different. Um, and I think that the pro-choice community does that in a really beautiful way because they, um, they do, you know, their goal is to create safe and sustainable communities for women too. You know, they, they want their families to be safe. Um, so yeah, I think it's just continuing to center women. It's um, working in communities that include all um, and just trying to, to keep fighting to change the landscape. The world is going to be different. If you're, you know, on the side that doesn't um, support all families, if you're on the side that doesn't support all options for women, you're on the wrong side. Um, mm -hmm. Things are going to change. And I think that we're going to have big battles till we get there. Um, I think that um, white people need to sit down and people of color, we need to allow them to stand up and, uh, and start listening to them because you know, it's in the end, it's their communities that are most greatly affected. Um, and so we just, you know, even, you know, what's happening um, with abortion rights, it's like, I just want to hear from people of color. We do that with adoption too. I, I told you, um, Hannah Jackson Matthews is somewhere my agency turns to all the time just to learn from. Angela Tucker is someone that we rely heavily on. Her Instagram posts and Facebooks, I mean, she is preaching and we are listening. Um, and uh, this adoptee life, big tough girl, I wanted to just make sure to say those two because they're the ones who are going to change this work, not me. I'm just trying to be a good ally. Um, you know, use my privilege and my power to try to change um, things and try to change communities. And um, I feel like the pro-choice community, the LGBT community is one place that I can make impact. One of the, one of the things I've been, I've been really interested in and digging into a lot, uh, not to make this about me, but one of the things that I've been really exploring is economic sexism. And a, a lot of the issues around abortion rights really boil down to kind of kind of bare knuckle economic sex, sexism and i feel like issues that impinge a birth mother or adoptive parents rights also boil down to that as well maybe not in the same way but when you're when you're limiting what a birth mother can do as her choices that that really comes down to simply a form of economic sex, sexism, whether it's intended or whether that's the result. That's that's what we're left with, and and, and so I, I wonder 
what an agency like yours or a network like yours can do to to try and make that the center of a conversation and and to jump backwards a little bit we you talked earlier and i think i mentioned earlier you had written an article back in 2017 when the u.s house of representatives or the republican majority in the house um was considering eliminating the adoption tax credit and what you what you said the the phrase you coined was that cutting the adoption tax is cutting families was that effort successful? Is the adoption tax credit still there? What did they do with it? And, 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 you know, how does that manifest itself in the daily lives of the people who are part of this, this transaction? Yeah. Well, one part of thing you said is if it is intended, you know, like it is intended, you know, it is intended. Um, and, you know, Sometimes I think I look back and parts of that article that you were referencing, I am proud of and parts of it I'm not. I don't, I don't know if the adoption tax credit is um, cutting it, is cutting families. What I really think is that it was intended to help people um, adopt older children through the foster care system who couldn't normally do it. But again, it came back to helping, you know, um, the 36 to one adopt their children because adoption, the foster care is not happening, you know, at the same rate and their, their fees are free. So they have no free, no fees. What I would rather see is us just stop it all. Start over again. Yeah. I really think that the money could be used to rebuild the foster care system, to tear it down, to start over. It could go to actually helping women to parent their children. We started a new program called FAB, Families Are Built. It's all of our work to help women parent their kids. We're starting a, um, a parenting fund because we really believe a woman shouldn't have to choose or shouldn't choose abortion just because it's paid for. A woman shouldn't have to choose adoption because she gets a living expenses. A woman should be able to choose to parent and get helped in that too. So just like you know, taking it all and saying, we want to do it all different. Anyone, any family who says, I want to donate, like you're going to, all your money will go to the parenting fund directly to help women parent their children. I mean, what we know for sure is there's trauma involved in adoption. So it should be one, it should be a last resort. And, and when it is done, it has to be done with women, pregnant people at the center of the plan. Well, we've, we're just about out of time, but there's one question from, from a listener and you can answer it in one word. And I think I know what your oh word is going to be, <laughs> but the question is, do you believe that there's a role for the adoption industry to play to relieve conditions that cause parents to consider placing children up for adoption, economic issues, uh, access to childcare, financial assistance, things like that? Yes. I think that the best agency is the one who uh, value all choices, um, parenting, adoption, abortion are going to invest resources in making sure that women have access to all options when they come to them are doing the best they can connecting to people they trust to do that. So I think I'm answering that, but um, that was not one word, (laughs) but the answer is yes. Um, All options means all options. (laughs) And and we'll leave it at that. We're out of time. Molly, thank you so much for joining us. Molly Ram Thomas is founder of Choice Network Adoptions. Choice Network is online at choicenetworkadoptions.com and on Twitter at Choice Network. We'll post links to their website and social media on this show's website under today's episode notes. Business Disrupted is hosted by me, Ted Gavin. Our executive producer is Robert Cellino. Our audio engineer is Aaron Keller. Our theme song and other original music, including our shiny new closing music that I'm blabbing over right now, are by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. 
branding by Peg Fitzpatrick and PMG Group. PR and social media by Carol Munger, Emily Stern, and ABNC Creative. You can find episode guides, show notes, and sign up for our newsletter at our website at disrupted.business. Email your thoughts to contact at disrupted.business. You've been listening to Business Disrupted on Voice America Business and the World Talk Radio Network. Thank you for tuning in to Business Disrupted. Be sure to join Ted Gavin for another edition of the program and some more great stories next Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until we speak again, have a great week.